Welcome to the podcast where we answer the question, that's healthy? This is your host, Hope Brandt. Social media has really done a doozy on our perception of health and wellness, and I want to help set the record straight. Quick fixes and fad diets? Unachievable beauty standards? Extreme fitness challenges that leave you more broken than when you started? I'll pass. Taking ownership of your choices, treating your body and mind with respect, filling your life with things and people that lift you up instead of tear you down. Yeah, that's healthy. And that's exactly what you'll find here. Let's start the show. Hi, and welcome back to the show. I'm so excited you're here with me. I hope you are having a great start to your new year. You're having a great January. If you made any resolutions, I hope you are still going strong. And if not, you know, it's not a failure. Maybe let's just reassess and set some more realistic resolutions that you can actually stick to that will be more sustainable for long term. Um, That's really the name of the game, right? It doesn't have to be go hard or go home. You can go moderately hard and then you can stay out as late as you want. (laughs) I have no idea if that analogy landed, but (laughs) we're just going to go with it. (laughs) Today, the subject is satiety. We are talking about what it is, how it works, and why it is important. This is one of those terms that I feel like is thrown around a lot in the nutrition space, but I haven't really seen a great explanation out there of what it is, why it matters to you, um, and how we can build our diet around it. Because creating satiety in your diet truly I think is a cornerstone of creating sustainability in your diet. So let's just go ahead and start with defining satiety and satiation. So satiation is the state of being sated, right? I love how all definitions start like this when it's a variation of the root word. Obviously, it's a a state of being sated. Okay, anyway, moving on. And it represents the cumulative effect of a variety of inhibitory, sensory, cognitive, digestive, and hormonal signals that bring an eating occasion to an end. So, satiety is the psychobiological process that suppresses hunger after an eating occasion and prevents further eating. It is said to control snacking between meals, and it is said to control meal size. So this sense of satiation, this is what brings you to the point of being full enough to stop eating. Really, I I feel like it is, I don't just feel like it, it is different from just fullness, right? Because a lot of times we can be full, but for some reason we keep eating or for some reason we feel like we need something else, even if we're physically full. Satiety, creating satiation in your diet means that you have reached the point where you want to stop eating. You have lost interest in food. So this is very important to build your diet around reaching this point. Because if we're not reaching (laughs) satiety, if we're not reaching the satiation point, 
then that's going to drive us to keep eating and possibly overeating, leading to unwanted consequences. So this is how satiety works in your body. It works with a series of gut signals. So when you are hungry, ghrelin is released from your empty stomach cells. So ghrelin (laughs) is known as the hunger hormone because it stimulates food intake by acting on the hypothalamus. That is a very, very tiny region in your brain. Production of ghrelin is reduced as the stomach stretches with sufficient food. So that's part one of how satiety signaling works. It starts with hunger, ghrelin, production. And then as we eat food and our stomach expands, it gets full ghrelin production stops. So it stops sending that hunger signal to our brain. Part two of satiety are the satiety hormones that are also produced in our gut. The first one is cholecystokinin or CCK. Um, The second one is glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, and peptide YY. These are released from the small and large intestines as food enters the body. And then these hormones, they also travel to the hypothalamus and work to inhibit food intake. Leptin, that I've talked about frequently if you've listened to past episodes of the podcast, um, is another well-known satiety hormone, but leptin is produced by fat cells. It is not produced in your stomach, in your intestines, in your gut. It is produced by your fat cells. So leptin is a factor that more so controls long-term energy balance because fat loss and and fat (laughs) accumulation are much slower processes. Leptin production can be increased and decreased based on the amount of fat that you have on your body. It is crucial that we do have an appropriate amount of body fat or our body will not be sending leptin to our brains. And rightly so, right? If we do not have enough fat on our bodies, our bodies are sensing we're in danger and that we need to eat Therefore, it's not going to send a satiety signal to our brain when our body is in danger and it needs to accumulate more fat. Adversely, if you are at a set body weight, body fat point that your body likes to be at, then your hunger and satiety driven by leptin is going to be pretty regulated. However, it does reach a point where your body can become resistant to leptin signaling if you are have accumulated um, an excess of adipose tissue. This is a driver in continued weight gain in people with obesity. So it's very interesting how this hormone works, but it is more of a long-term driver of satiety versus these hormones that are produced in our gut, like CCK, GLP-1, um, and peptide YY. They are more responsive meal-to-meal and are thought to have more of a critical role in meal initiation and meal termination. So this is a little rabbit hole, but not, not too much of a rabbit hole. Knowing what we know about gut hormones, the ones that I just were talking about, CCK, GLP-1, this is one facet of how 
drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi, also known as semaglutides, this is how they work. They are GLP-1 agonists. So an agonist is a substance that initiates a physiological response when combined with a receptor. GLP-1 agonists stimulate the receptor for GLP-1 in the brain, which increases satiety. So in short, they help you feel fuller for longer, which decreases your food intake, which can produce a caloric deficit, which then results in weight loss. This is just one facet of how these drugs work. They also delay gastric emptying, which also helps you feel fuller longer um, and results in eating less. But just something good to know, these drugs are pretty much household names at this point. So knowing how they work, uh, I think is important. Okay. That is satiety, how it works in your stomach, in your brain, and, you know, the hormones and the signaling that is involved in producing satiety. So let's talk about satiety in the framework of macronutrients, the nutrients that yield energy that give our body calories. These are the macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, and fat. As we look at how to create a diet that is going to yield the most satiety for us. And I just, I guess let's talk about, you know, why we would want to do that, right? I, we already talked a little bit about, or we kind of went through what satiety is, but it is important to set your diet up to produce that sense of satiety so that you are giving your body what it needs and you're not frequently fixated on food. This is, I think, an important aspect of a sustainable diet. So looking at the macros, protein, carbohydrates, fat. Protein is going to be the most satiating macronutrient. And one kind of theory about why protein is going to be the most satiated macronutrient. Our bodies need protein, right? We have essential amino acids. That means we have to get these from an outside source. Our body cannot synthesize those specific amino acids. We have to get them from food sources. So there's a hypothesis and it's called the protein leverage hypothesis. This Protein leverage hypothesis states that human beings will prioritize the consumption of protein in food over other dietary components and will eat until protein needs have been met, regardless of energy content, thus leading to overconsumption of foods when their protein content is low. Okay, so what does this mean? (laughs) This theory is that if you're not getting enough protein in your diet, you will not experience the satiety that comes with getting enough protein. Your hunger hormones will signal you to keep eating until you reach this threshold of your body recognizing that you're getting enough protein. So we can avoid that by eating a higher protein diet and then very easily reaching that satiation point by including enough protein. I think a lot of times this protein leverage hypothesis, we can see that in action when we're not focusing on protein foods 
or we think that we're including foods that are high protein, but they're actually more a source of fat or carbohydrates. So just a plant-based diet comes to mind when I think of this hypothesis showing up in, in real life. Um, so if you are eating lots and lots and lots of plants, you're probably going to have to eat way more of that to reach a point of protein intake that your body is going to recognize as being enough to hit that threshold. That's because plant foods are not super efficient sources of protein. They're almost all higher in carbohydrates, um, unless you're eating something like a coconuts or avocados, which are higher in fat. But for the most part, these foods are great sources of carbs, not protein. So you have to eat a lot more of those foods to reach that protein threshold. Whereas if you are including lean proteins like meats and low-fat dairy in your diet, you can reach that threshold pretty easily if you're prioritizing those things at your meals throughout the day. Okay, so protein, the most satiating macronutrient. Next, we have carbohydrates and a specific type of carbohydrates. We're talking about fiber. This is one of the most satiating nutrients under that macronutrient umbrella of carbohydrates, right? There are many different types of carbohydrate. The main three are sugar, starch, and fiber. Fiber is going to be, again, the most satiating macronutrient. That is because fiber creates a lot of volume in the food that you are eating. So this is, you, you know, we can look at fruits and vegetables providing that fiber content as well. Our stomach measures satiety in volume, right? Back at the beginning, when we were talking about the signaling of our hormones, your stomach knows to stop sending ghrelin, the hunger hormone, when your stomach expands due to food intake. If you are not eating food that produces enough volume for your stomach to experience that distension, then you are not going to experience the signaling or the reduced signaling of ghrelin to your brain. Your stomach will continue sending those hunger signals to your brain. We'll talk a little bit more towards the end of the podcast about calorically dense foods and hyperpalatable foods and where they fall on the satiety scale. But know that high volume foods are going to produce more satiety than low volume calorically dense foods. Back to the other types of carbohydrates. Starch is a complex carbohydrate, so is fiber. So that is going to be more satiating than the last form of carbohydrate, which is sugar. It's a simple carbohydrate. So your body breaks that down easier, and especially when it is refined and removed from its natural state. Like, you know, when you're eating a piece of fruit, yeah, you're getting fructose, you're getting that simple sugar, but it's accompanied with fiber and a bunch of vitamins and minerals as well. If we remove the fructose and then, you know, add that to um, a fruit snack or create high fructose corn syrup and are drinking that in a soft drink, that's going to have a lot, <laughs> it's going to have a much different effect on the satiety that we experience consuming that food. So 
we'll talk more about that um, throughout the episode as well. But know that your stomach measures satiety in volume, not caloric density, and the water content in fruits and vegetables help produce satiety as well. Again, it's a volume thing. Studies have also shown that carbohydrates tend to be more satisfying, therefore impacting subsequent food choices positively. So that means when you include carbohydrates at your meals, you tend to feel more satisfied after that meal, which allows you to reach that satiation point of being done eating. A lot of times when we don't include enough carbohydrates, we're reaching for something sweet after our meal and we don't feel satisfied until we've gotten that thing. Eating carbohydrates and including them in a balanced meal can help you feel satisfied after that meal and help you feel quote unquote done eating. And then you can just move on from that meal without feeling like, you know, you have to scrounge through the pantry or the freezer or the fridge to find something sweet after that meal. Okay. And then lastly, our third macronutrient, the least satiating macronutrient is going to be fat. Fat has an inverse relationship with satiety. So that means typically the higher fat something is, the lower it's going to be in satiation at the time of consumption. This is because foods that are high in fat tend to be high in caloric density, but low in volume. So when we're looking at the different macronutrients, we have, again, protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Protein and carbohydrates are four calories per gram. Fat is nine calories per gram. So if you have equal weights of protein, carbohydrates, and fats, the fat is going to be almost double the caloric content that the protein or the carbohydrate would, but it's going to be the same volume. So when you're consuming foods that are high in fat, you're going to be consuming more calories, but less volume of food. And like we just said, stomach measures satiety in volume, not caloric density. So when we're looking at satiety based on the amount of calories consumed or the volume consumed of foods, fat is going to be the least satiating macronutrient because it's just looking at the volume of these foods. So this is how we kind of categorize something as nutrient dense versus calorie dense. Foods that are high in fat are typically calorie dense, especially when we're looking at things that have like added fat, like oils. Those are going to be very high in caloric density, but probably lower in nutrient density. I'm thinking about baked goods, processed snacks. Those are typically very high in fat, low in other nutrients. Whereas nutrient-dense foods, I'm thinking of lean proteins and fruits and vegetables. You can eat a large volume of those for fewer calories. Um, So this is how fat falls on that satiety scale when we're judging them against the other two macronutrients. Okay, another category for looking at satiety and where different foods fall on that scale. We're looking at food structure. So 
foods become less satiating the more processed they are. The less work your body has to do to break that food down, the less satiating that thing is going to be. So let's talk through a few examples. First one that comes to mind is almonds versus almond meal versus almond butter, right? So we're getting more and more processed as we kind of go down the line. So if you eat a handful of almonds, that's probably going to fill you up and be more satiating than eating one cookie or something that's made with almond flour or almond meal, which is probably going to be more satiating than eating a tablespoon of almond butter or two tablespoons of almond butter, even though those things are probably even in caloric density. So, right, when we're looking at creating a satiating diet, we want the volume. We don't, (laughs) we're looking at the volume. That's the more important thing. Not saying we don't want the calories. We also do want the calories. But we're looking for foods that are high in nutrients and high in volume that are going to help us create the most satiation. And fats in general, that's harder to do, right? Because they're just inherently more calorically dense. Um, Another example, looking at a carbohydrate source this time. Okay, so whole apple, that is going to be the most satiating choice. Then moving down the line, apple sauce, right? That's not going to be as satiating as the entire apple, but the apple sauce is going to be more satiating than drinking the same amount of calories in apple juice, right? So we see how this works. Okay. Last example, protein. So 30 grams of protein from meat, from like a steak or a chicken breast, is going to be much more satiating than 30 grams of protein from a protein powder. It affects your satiety signaling much different when you are eating 30 grams of protein versus, you know, drinking 30 grams of protein powder, or even stirring the protein powder into whatever else, that's not adding the volume that you need to experience the satiety signaling, right? So that's going to be the major player when we're looking at the food structure. Something else to think about is that your satiety signaling and the digestion process starts in your mouth. It starts when you're chewing, So if you're chewing more food, your digestion is kind of getting a kickstart from that. Whereas if you're drinking something um, or can eat something very quickly, like the applesauce, you're not going to get that benefit of starting that digestion process and starting that kind of signaling when you're chewing, um, when the food is in your mouth. So again, just something to be aware about when we're looking at the many different factors of what creates a satiating diet. Okay, so let's now talk about how energy density and hyperpalatability <laughs> affect feeling satiated after a meal, reaching that satiation point. So, hyperpalatable foods, those are foods basically that just taste super good and they have a mix of fat, carbohydrates, salt, or sugar, or maybe all of those things. These are foods that typically are not existing in a natural state, right? These are foods that have been engineered to be hyperpalatable, to reach that peak 
point of tastiness by combining all of these elements to create a taste and a texture that is highly rewarding in our brain. So let's talk about this a little bit more. Hyperpalatable foods blunt the brain's response to satiety signals and activate the reward system, which is also driven by the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus controls our appetite and our hunger and satiety signaling, but it also regulates the secretion of chemicals and hormones related to stress, pleasure, and pain. So, eating foods that repeatedly stimulate the release of dopamine the feel good hormone associating or the feel good hormone associated with rewarding experiences can lead to dysregulated appetite and emotional eating <laughs> so eating foods that repeatedly stimulate the release of dopamine the feel good hormone associated with rewarding experiences can lead to dysregulated appetite and emotional eating Most of the time, these highly rewarding foods, right, which is the combination of fat, carbs, salt, sugar, or all of these things, are very calorically dense as well. So they not only taste amazing and stimulate super strong reward signals in our brains, but they're also less satiating because they're typically low in volume, right? We talked about I feel like a broken record, but this is, I think, a really important take-home point that your stomach measures satiety in volume, not caloric density. Your stomach doesn't know how many calories it's getting, but it does know the volume that it's experiencing, right? So that helps to initiate and terminate the meal time. There are, of course, other things that help regulate your appetite long-term when we're talking about more so your body fat levels and leptin, right? So at that point, your body will be able to know if it's getting enough calories or if it's not based on your fat stores maintaining or going down or going up. But when we're talking about just meal to meal, volume is the biggest driver in stopping the signaling of ghrelin to your brain and starting the signal of all those satiety hormones from your intestines. Okay, so I have an example of highly rewarding, (laughs) calorically dense foods. Um, When I was at my in-law's house over Christmas, they had these salted chocolate-covered caramel candies, and I was obsessed with them. Okay, they were, hmm, I'm trying to see if I can describe the size of them accurately. You know, they were probably the size of like two die put together, like a pair of dice. They were probably, each one was that big. Two of those candies, (laughs) two of them, they were like 300 calories for two of them. It was two bites of food was 300 calories. That is like astronomically calorically dense. (laughs) But if I wanted to, I could have sat there and ate 10 at a time. Because they tasted so good and they were so low volume. So this is a recipe for overeating and for overeating to the point where you don't even realize how many calories you're eating. Um, Because these hyperpalatable foods 
are highly rewarding. They taste so good, so you don't want to stop eating them. And they're low volume. So your stomach isn't experiencing that distension that normally tells your brain to stop sending ghrelin. So it's kind of a double whammy when we're looking at the effect that these hyperpalatable foods can have in response to our satiety signaling, as well as the reward circuit in our brain. So why is this important to know? Why does this matter to your diet? This was actually a really important protective mechanism that the human race have developed in order to keep us safe, right? This is a protective mechanism that we are able to consume a large amount of food at one time when our brain senses those things that make us want to keep eating, mostly that salty flavor. We are able to eat so much at one time because that was crucial to protect us in times of food scarcity or famine. We needed to be able to kind of hoard calories and build up energy stores when we could, when that food was available, so that in times when food was scarce, we had those fat reserves to fall back on and then we wouldn't starve to death, right? That's kind of important. Our body is always, always, always trying to keep us safe. However, in this current food environment, this can feel more like a sabotage than a safeguard. But I think if we can reframe it to know that this is our brain taking care of us and know that this is totally normal to react to hyperpalatable foods this way. Um, You're not going to feel super satiated when you're eating food that tastes this good. Our brains are wired to want more of it and for us to keep eating it. So knowing that this protective mechanism is there for our benefit, but it can feel like a sabotage in this food environment. Having realistic expectations is super key for approaching these moments where we are choosing to eat hyperpalatable food or we just know we're going to be the in the environment that it is around. Knowing how it affects your brain, knowing that it is not realistic to expect yourself to just willpower your way out of it. Um, You might be able to do that if you haven't expended very much willpower earlier in the day, if you've gotten enough sleep, if you are eating enough calories to where (laughs) you are not experiencing super extreme hunger or appetite, then sure, you might be able to have enough self-control to take a bite or two of something that tastes that good. But if you are in any unideal circumstance surrounding those things at all, if you haven't gotten enough sleep, if you are currently on a diet and you are in a calorie deficit and your body's, you know, has ramped up your hunger cues asking for more energy, if you've had a stressful, hard day and your willpower is depleted, it's going to be very, very difficult to eat, you know, what I would call a quote-unquote appropriate amount of that food, knowing not only, you know, how it works in our brain, but how our brains are wired to keep us eating that food. So this just goes more to the point of why prioritizing foods that are going to create satiety in your diet help you eat in a way that will set you up for success in being able to eat 
in a way that is aligned with your goals and just eat in a way that is overall healthful long term. So constructing a high satiety diet. I have a podcast episode, The Three Pillars of a Sustainable Diet. And really, is three pillars of a sustainable diet because they create satiety in your diet. They help you experience reaching the point of fullness and being done with your meals and snacks so that you don't overeat um, and you can make conscious nutrition decisions. So the three pillars of a sustainable diet are balance, nourishment, and satisfaction, right? Balance, eating a mix of macronutrients. Nourishment, eating enough fruits and vegetables, high fiber, high volume foods. And satisfaction, including things that are enjoyable in your diet so that you can reach the point of being quote unquote done when you finish a meal because you've enjoyed it. So go back and listen to that episode because I think it really is just a continuation of this concept of building a high satiety diet. Um, And I go into those elements much more in that episode. So I hope this was helpful. I am always available via email or shoot me a DM on Instagram if you have questions or you want to discuss further. Take these principles, take this knowledge and implement it this week. That is my hope for you. I hope you have a great rest of your day, no matter when you're listening. And I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode. Thanks. But wait, (laughs) before you go, I'd love it if you'd share this episode with a friend who needs it. And to make sure we stay connected, find me on social media at hopewell underscore health. Or for more information about my nutrition coaching services, check out my website, hopewellhealth.online. And always remember, you are smart, capable, and talented. You have what it takes. I'm just here to educate and encourage you along the way. Catch you next time.